part of Double P Media. DoublePmedia.com. Hey, spoiler alert. We're talking about Penny Dreadful City of Angels in the context of the most recent episode. If you haven't watched that episode yet, you might be spoiled. So watch, and then come back. Delightfully Dreadful. And welcome to Delightfully Dreadful, a podcast dedicated to all things Penny Dreadful, especially the new show, Penny Dreadful City of Angels. My name is Double M. Double M? Matt Murdick. Oh. You can call me Matt or you can call me Murdick. And my co-host with me today is a person who is with the Double P Media Network. He's also a famous actor, at least he's famous as far as I'm concerned, and this man knows his Hollywood Max Factor BS when he sees it. It's Catfish. Oh, Matt, I am so glad to join you on this. When we, It was such a surprise we know each other from other podcasts when we found out that we were both fans of the deliciously insane Penny Dreadful. What what a crazy, wild uh, run that was on Penny Dreadful. I'm sad that it's gone, uh, but we've got a new chapter here, going back to the past. Yeah, not quite as far back into the past as Victorian England, but we are going back to 1938, it would seem, the late 1930s. And we are going to be reviewing Season 1, Episode 1, Santa Morte, which is translated roughly as the Angel of Death. And it was written by the showrunner, returning once again to do a new series, John Logan, directed by Paco Cabasis. And uh, this was an interesting, different kind of twist on what we're used to seeing, don't you think? I do, I do indeed. Now, just to sort of give something away here at the beginning, because I am a famous actor to you, I am a member of the Television Academy, which means we get screenings, uh, et cetera. And of course, now these days, I got a little app that I could use on my, on my fire stick. And I was able to watch the first two episodes of this, uh, ahead of time. I'm, I'm not, we're not going to podcast before they get released. So I'm not cheating, but. I have to say, overall, the first two, I want more craziness. That, uh, the first episode is really great, but there was so much insanity in Penny Dreadful. So much. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to get there. Excellent. Well, that's a good reason to look forward to. Uh, one of the things that Logan did for me that I feel that he does really well, because I've admitted to you and Bubba on another uh, Double P podcast that, that we were covering on Babylon Berlin, I'm not really a horror guy. But what the thing that got to me in the first series was the way the characters were developed. I, I oh. felt so much for those characters, regardless of how evil or non-evil they were. And uh, I really appreciated the grayness of what is a monster, what is not a monster. Uh, Just off the top here, though, I think that we can see that this series is going to focus on uh, there are the real monsters, but we can all we can bring out the monsters and everybody else if we choose to. Yeah. Now, is it a problem that I had more sympathy uh, for Rory Kinnear 
when he was the Frankenstein creature in Penny Dreadful than the friendly, happy German here in the new series. <laughs> uh, yes, it is a problem, Catfish. It's very much a problem as far as I'm concerned. No, uh, you know what? I, I Jury's still out on, on how far this character Peter Craft is going to go. So it's going to be very interesting to see that. Um, I was so delighted to know that he was going to be back in this series. Yeah. So, uh, because he's one of the, the actors that totally made the last series for oh, me. Yeah, so great. Uh, I can't wait to see what what uh, Logan writes for him and what he does in this particular series as we go forward. Well, Matt, I've delayed it long enough, and I it's my apologies. We have to give our ratings for this first episode. I think that we do. What would your rating for this first episode, Santa Morte, be, Catfish? I'm going to give it eight out of ten what I like to call triple C's. Triple C's? Yeah, that is creepy child colligation. Uh, colligate is a word that means to bind or fasten together. So this was probably my favorite and weirdest thing of this episode is when after faux German Magda goes to see the German doctor, she doesn't even bother to completely leave the building until she subsumes her creepy child into her body. Eight out of ten creepy child colligations. <laughs> love it. Love it. It needs more craziness and camp, I think, to it. Uh, again, uh, I think it's fine in this episode. The second episode was sort of a letdown, but we'll get to that when it comes in. It's a good setup. I love the 40s, but it's not really going noir. It's also, at this point, really not going that crazy. And I, and, and, and here's a big thing, I think, Matt. Even though I'm going to cut up some slack for episode one, my concern going forward is that, and I think he's a great actor. I think he's a fabulous actor, very entertaining. But I think Nathan Miss Lane is, is badly miscast in this role. Uh, and so that's, I'm concerned about that kind of going forward as well. Okay. Now, what about you? What's your rating for this episode? Well, I thought about it, and uh, after hearing those thoughts, I appreciate them. I'm going slightly higher than you because. Okay. Uh, I did find myself get becoming invested in these characters very quickly, which usually takes me a little while. Um, 8.5, what I like to call, I'll go in the same frame as you are, except I'll go the other way. I'll go double Ds. Oh, double Ds. Dichotomized descendants. Oh, wow, my goodness. So you're looking at them as they come back together. I'm looking at them as they separate. Okay, all right. So, yeah, I really liked the, the, the characters in this story. I didn't know I'm, I'm not a good Spanish speaker or in any way uh, familiar with the Mexican or Latino culture. So this was one of those things that I feel will be eye opening for me in terms of their history. Uh, I love Maria Vega. I, I love Santiago Vega. I, I, I'm rooting for them already. Um, I appreciate uh, Raul's stance as well. So that whole concept of that family and just the relationship between Magda, our, our main foe mm -hmm. and sent Santa Morte, our other foe, uh, supposedly, uh, we're going to, it feels like, uh, there's already a great chemistry between the two of them, especially in that opening scene. Now, see already, this is where my concerns come in is that you're talking about all these people that you care about. But so many of the people that you are talking about are not 
uh, mystical in any way. And, and so for me, again, that's what I love so much about Penny Dreadful. They took all these stories. They took like every single classic monster, mm-hmm. put it into one show and then kind of did a twist on it. And so all that was amazing. But here we have so many quote unquote real non-magical people. So I'm worried that a lot of the story is going to be in the real world dealing with real people also one other thing and this is i'm not knocking it down because of this but matt didn't we just do podcast of three seasons of germans how the hell did we get involved with so many germans again (laughs) in a story about 1930s 1940s los angeles i mean my god it's we're filthy with nazis Yes, we're talking about Babylon Berlin, which is a series that we just did for the Double P Podcast Network. And uh, it, too, was supposed to be noir and uh, also uh, Nazis, Germans. And yeah, but that's okay because it was set in Germany. How do we have so many Germans in Los Angeles? That's, I was completely unprepared to have, to have Nazis in this show. Well, just as Goss says, you know, a man can spread his arms. They like the sun, all those sure. things. Sure. They want to drive down Wilshire in tanks. Let me tell you something, Matt. <laughs> they have been working on Wilshire for like 10 years. It's a damn mess. The last thing we need after all the work they've done on it is for them to drive tanks down there and mess it up all over again. Oh, yes, yes. Well, maybe you should file that complaint to Townsend and he can do something about that. Yeah, I, I will. Well, I will talk more about Thompson when we get to him. <laughs> what, 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 what an upstanding American he is. Absolutely. He is a stand-up uh, administrator of the transportation uh, yeah. area of Los Angeles in the 1930s. Now, Matt, we want people to interact with us. We want, we want a lot of feedback. We want a, lo- a lot of like, you know, tell us when we're wrong. Tell us when we're being idiots, especially me. That's my specialty is being an idiot. So how can people reach out to us? How can they let the world know about us? Well, we don't really know if you will care what we think, but we definitely do care what you think. So please Good point. send your tweets to at DreadfulPod on Twitter. Just the word dreadful with pod behind it. All one word on Twitter. You can also send emails to dreadfulpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to the Double P Podcast Network. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram, the word double, the letter P-H-Q, or you can find them on Facebook, facebook.com slash the word double, the letter P-H-Q. Please be sure to reach out to everybody who's involved with this podcast and let us know what you're thinking about the show, about the podcast. We'd really love to hear from you. We're going to try some fun games at the end of this particular episode. We're really just kind of feeling everything out, seeing what flies and what sticks to the wall and what have you. But uh, if you have any comments about anything, feel free to contact us. Once again, at DreadfulPod on Twitter, DreadfulPodcast at gmail.com, or all of those great Double P HQ handles that you can find across social media. And I'm going to beg you, I'm going to beg you, beg you, wherever you get your podcast from, if there's a way for you to leave a review, not just a, not just a rating, but a review, please do that. It really helps uh, other people get to listen to this ridiculousness. I beg of you. Absolutely. In fact, Catfish, today I looked on iTunes at our podcast. We are the number six podcast underneath the heading Penny Dreadful at the moment. 
the problem is, is that only two other podcasts have actually released episodes on this particular episode. So, and still we're number six. Well, that's probably because some of those podcasts uh, have to do with the first one. But that's gone. Now you've got to join us for this one. That's right. We want to be your number one podcast when it comes to Penny Dreadful City of Angels. Do we want to get into talking about what happened on this episode in a little more specificity? Let's, let's talk about what happened on the episode. But I think what we need to talk about first is it's funny because I rewatched the episode because I watched it a couple weeks ago. I rewatched the episode and I noticed that this is not not just said once, but it's said twice. It's said by Magda. It's said by Santa Muerte. The, and it's the opening words and then reinforced later. There will become a day when nation will battle nation. Race will devour race. Brother will kill brother. On that day, a leader will arise. So presumably this is the setup. Magda is trying to bring uh, this uh, devastation. And then I don't know whether Magda thinks she's going to be the leader or I don't know what the leader's going to do because I assume she just wants everything destroyed. But that's the setup for this. We, I'm going to presume that it's not Nathan Lane who's the leader that will arise. <laughs> but that is what is being set up here. And in fact, it didn't take us very long, one episode, until we had a brother at least shoot another brother, if not kill him. That's correct. And of course, it's it's uh, Peter Kraft. If you want to look at him, he's urging the United States not to get involved with what's happening in the old world. Uh, he's trying actually to prevent Magda's prediction there or her her prophecy uh maybe that's why she's working on it it could be so are you saying right now that uh he's a good german at this point a good german or a bad german we're going to determine that here as we go through some of these story points all right What I tried to do, Catfish, was I tried to group some of the stories uh, together as best they could be grouped together. And I came up with some subheadings for each of these stories. Our first one is Sista Sista. All right. Tell me. It starts several years before 1938 when one of our heroes, Santiago Vega, is a child. He's tending to the music while his father's tending to the fields. And we meet Magda, who is played, of course, by Natalie Dormer, as she explains to her sister, Santa Morte, who is played by Lorenza Izzo, that there is a time coming when uh, said prophecy before will happen. Magda says that she will be the spark to burn the world and then offers Santa Morte the souls of those in the fields. Now, Tiago's father ends up getting consumed by those flames that Magda sets. But when Tiago tries to save his dad, or at least chase after his father who is being burned, Sister Morte actually forces him away with a touch on his shoulder that he ends up carrying for life. Oh, I guess that's not so nice. Now, Magda carries on separately throughout the rest of the episode, and we're going to talk about some of those in other subsections here in a minute. But Santa Morte is called upon by Tiago's mother, in 1938. Uh, She is a friendly neighborhood witch. Her name is Maria. She's played by Adriana Barrazzo. And Maria pleads with Santa Morte to intercede with her evil sister Magda. Sister Morta starts to become infuriated by the fact that Maria is being so persistent, shall we say. Now, Maria, having seen all of this, she kind of takes matters into her own hands and goes to Tiago, who is played by Daniel 
Zovato, the night before the standoff between her other sons and the police regarding road construction, and pleads for Tiago to stop the protesting or else all things will end in blood or in fire. And at the end of the episode, Magda and Santa Morte are reunited in the Vegas family neighborhood after all of the aftermath of Tiago even having shot his brother Raul, who is played by Adam Rodriguez, in order to save his partner, Detective Lewis Mischner, played by Nathan Lane. Yeah, it would have been okay as far as I was concerned if Nathan Lane was gone. Again, I think he's a fabulous actor. I, I just, I just, I just don't think he's right here. He doesn't, he doesn't have the, the, the heft, the gravitas, the, the tiredness, the, you know, that I think we need for this guy. Um, you know, even when he says racist stuff, it, <laughs> to me, it comes off. I just, I just don't believe it. Um, yeah, you know, one thing I saw here is, uh, you know, uh, we supposedly have Magda, who's bad, and Santa Muerte, who is, uh, let's just say, not good. <laughs> I mean, she, she doesn't just see, it's not like that we have the bad witch and the good witch. We've got the bad witch and the um, not good witch. <laughs> She's scary. Um, she repeats the brother versus brother, nation versus nation, blah, 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 blah. But she does not take kindly to Maria Pressinger. Also, she says that Tiago should be there uh, essentially to calm things down. And uh, I guess he did not really calm things down. I mean, he tried. God bless him. He tried. But uh, Double D. Double D? Yeah, Dominatrix Dorner. That's what I'm calling oh. the uh, That's what I'm calling the uh, b- black leather clad uh, Magda. Oh, um, well, I'll just call her Double M. Double M? Main Magda. Okay, Main Magda. May, or Mayhem Magna. <laughs> um, she uh, doesn't like the way things are going and does the whispering, not just to a cop, but then she also does it uh, to Tiago's brother, Raul. Yes, yes. Uh, so it seems to me like that is that is cheating. Like if she could just at any time whisper in someone's ear, like why wouldn't she just do that all the time? Uh, that's true. Uh, she's out to prove a point, right? From the very beginning of the episode, she told uh, Santa Morte that uh, it's within themselves. So she's just making suggestions. It's still up to them to choose. You know, it doesn't really seem like it's up to them to choose when she whispers in their ear. <laughs> that's cheating. Magda is cheating. She's like, I'll just kind of show them the way. No, she's not showing them the way. She's hypnotizing them into doing her dirty work. Well, I will say that she is kind of like the uh, a predator who's seeking the the weakest prey. Not so much with Raul, but with that young poor cop. The way his eyes just kept getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> I don't thought that was funny. Well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say Raul is weak, but he is just like the cop, susceptible. He just needs a few words to motivate him because he's already kind of in a state, which is understandable. Yeah, totally understood. Uh, why don't we talk about this Vega family and, and try and pick them apart a little bit in order to see where, uh, why we have these feelings uh, about these characters already uh, by the end of this episode. Near the beginning of the episode, Tiago celebrates his birthday with his mother Maria and his brother Mateo, who is played by Jonathan Nieves, and his sister Josefina, who is played by Jessica Garza. Uh, the family seems to be taking great pride in the fact 
that Tiago has become the first Hispanic detective in the police department. And tensions do rise a little bit when Tiago's brother Raul shows up. Raul is much more of a champion of the laborer. Uh, and of course, their father had worked in the fields. And uh, until their mother makes the two of them make up, it, it seems like they, they could be at odds with each other. Further in the episode, at the local gathering place, uh, Mateo actually catches his little sister, Josefita, getting felt up, as he calls it, by a man. And he runs the man out of the place where he works. And when Mama Maria breaks everything up, she scolds Josefina slightly, but then sends her away. And Mateo seems to have a lot deeper issues about not being able to have success like his brother Tiago has had. Maria tells her son that you have to start somewhere. She's clearly somebody who believes in America being a place of opportunity. You have to start somewhere is what she tells Mateo. There's clear family divisions about pride in the workplace here. Uh, be it whether you're a cannery worker or a cop. And later that evening, Tiago actually tries to keep Mateo from getting involved in Raul's plan to protest and fight the building of this road, which will come through their neighborhood. Instead, Tiago gets talked into telling his partner, Mishner, who is played by Nathan Lane, that he will not be present as part of the police force against his neighborhood. And Mishner's scolds Tiago when he's told this. So what thoughts do we have about this? Because I've really found the whole idea of how everybody's experience in this family is different. Josephine is being objectified. Mateo feels frustrated and a failure. Raul probably overprides his place, possibly out of a fear, uh, out of a feeling of inferiority as well. And Santiago is just trying to do the right thing but it's you know it's getting himself into a lot of trouble at the same time just in terms of his own internal conflicts about how he can be a, a better representation of his community but at the same time uphold the ideas of the people that he works for yeah i mean i, I my my thoughts about their uh, about about what's going on with this family uh, i I mean, we'll kind of separate it out from 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 the politician and and that which we're going to talk about it later. But I think it's important. We can't go much further on this podcast before we talk about what this whole uh, thing about their neighborhood. And I don't know whether this actually happened, but definitely what it's at least alluding to is what happened to the Mexican communities regarding Chavez Ravine. Okay, Chavez Ravine was an area uh, that it up until the 40s was a very poor neighborhood, but it was a very kind of cohesive Mexican community. Mm. And what happened was a bunch of politicians said, oh, no, this is a horrible area and essentially bulldozed that area to make way for Dodger Stadium. Mm. Okay, so if this is not a real thing as far as bulldozing it to make to make way for a, a uh, freeway to Pasadena, it is at least alluding to the horrible actions that the Los Angeles community took to destroy this strong Mexican community in Chavez Ravine and replace it with Dodger Stadium. So this is something that is going to obviously go throughout this. And again, it, this is more realistic. It's kind of not 
what I was interested in, but if we're going to talk about this, this is this is something that we should realize is a real thing that happened, and to displace members of the community because they're brown, uh, it's quite horrific. That's one of the things that I love about Logan's storytelling, Catfish, is the fact that he can actually take something that he finds historical or, or, or make reference to something historical, but he finds an applicability to it that brings things to where you can think about those kind of situations in the world we live in today. Um, Social economic repression is still happening. The segregation of neighborhoods due to however they zone, what have you, uh, that still happens. It's a very dirty underside to city government, to state government, to all kinds of things like that. And it still happens today. And it's one of those things where I didn't really think about it. in our time right now, which is during the time of the global pandemic crisis of 2020, uh, it doesn't feel like something that would creep back up in your mind immediately. But then you're reminded by issues that are happening to people around this pandemic, especially in terms of uh, the, the social economic conditions that they've been placed in due to these kinds of practices and are still being placed in due to these kinds of practices. It's just done with a little bit uh, less uh, out frontness as it was back in, in the times. So I, I do love how you brought that up simply for the fact that I think that that's one of the things that even with the first series that Logan did about uh, the way people are treated differently in terms of uh, Victoria, England as well. So I, mm-hmm. I, uh, it brought issues to mind uh, for the modern day then as well. So, yeah, uh, that's one of the reasons why I got so invested in this family so quickly, I think. Yeah, I mean, with our modern sensibilities, we're definitely on the side of the family uh, retaining their property, which unless this is as strong a fantasy as Penny Dreadful, they were probably not. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, that brings up our next storyline, because tied into this freeway is the people who are helping to develop it, uh, who have a huge uh, model of the freeway in their home, uh, along with some indications that uh, they like to uh, participate in uh, non-standard religious activities. Very non-standard religious activities. It's a Mexican murder mystery is what we'll call it for now. But Tiago Tiago is starting out as a homicide detective in the LAPD, as we've mentioned. And he's the first Latino to earn the position. But while he is supposed to start on a Monday, he actually gets his assigned partner, Mishner, calling him uh, in the week prior uh, to join him in an investigation at the L.A. River. Because there are four corpses found with their hearts cut out. And their faces done up in a ritual that Tiago recognizes as a Day of the Dead tribute to Santa Morte, even though he doesn't tell Mishner that right away. There's a warning in Spanish that is written in blood, which translated means you take our heart, we take yours. And when they get back to the station, members of the force, like Officer Riley, uh, who's played by Rod McLaughlin, tries to give Tiago a hard time because of his ethnicity, but Mishner is not going to have any of that, and he stands up for it. He also encourages Tiago to stand up for himself. They're then called into Vanderhorf's office, uh, who is their, their chief. Uh, Brent Spiner is your actor there. Uh, I'll always just refer to him as Data. <laughs> I can't think of him in any other way. Uh, but they get And neither can I. It's so strange to see him here. You're like, 
Are you? Where's Picard? Yeah, exactly. We need Picard to direct the traffic here. Uh, but in the office, he tells them that who the victims have been identified as, and it is James Hatslett from Beverly Hills. Uh, and they're suspecting that the crime was perpetrated by Mexicans, despite Tiago's questioning it. Vanderhorf warns of a race war if this investigation should leak. And while taking lunch, Lewis and Tiago get to know each other a little better, but Lewis urges them to leave when the Nazi demonstration begins, which we will get to in just a second. Tiago and Mishner investigate the Hazlitt home, where they find out that the family was not only somewhat of religious or cultish or something, but they also find the model of the parkway, and they deduce that Hazlitt was the one building it, and now the motivations for the Mexicans living in his old neighborhood, uh, Tiago says maybe it is the Mexicans that killed these people. And that night, Tiago consults with his mother, uh, because he recognizes the makeup as the, the Santa Morte stuff, and she is the authority on it. And he starts asking her about if there's been any activity within the, mm, let's call them a fandom of Santa Morte. Yeah, you know, um, as far as, I mean, I love the, the, the way that people were axed. I love that they're going into it. I, I have to say, I don't know whether it was just my natural skepticism but I, you know, or just my, being a modern viewer, the second I saw it, I, I never, I, I never believed for a second that it was actually Mexicans. And mm-hmm. I felt like it was a misdirect. And then when it turns out these people were building the, I, I mean, it's, I think it's a smart dis- misdirect to kill them that way. And, it, and to make it, you know, you take our heart, we'll take yours. Uh, but to me, this seems like an obvious uh, no, it was not the Mexicans. Did, did I, it feel that way to you? Absolutely, it feels that way to me. I can only suspect that Magda is behind it somehow, uh, but I don't know how yet. I think that that's the thing to be resolved. But I, I'm just well, going. Well, to- I will. I will say this. Uh, uh, not even a spoiler alert, but I mean, perhaps if you're involved with a crazy cult, uh, maybe those are the people you should be checking out. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. That that's might want to be one of those things too. Did were they trying to leave the cult? Were they? You know, whatever. We're gonna find out. Let us know what you think. Send your tweets to at dreadful pod on Twitter, or you can send emails to dreadfulpodcast at gmail dot com. So we've talked a lot about Mexicans so far in this episode. You want to talk about the Germans? <laughs> Nine. I'm done talking about Germans. All right, I'll talk about the Germans. All right, so we meet Peter Kraft, who is Rory Kinnear, as we already talked about, who is the great. Ah, he was so immediately touching as uh, the monster in A Penny a Dreadful. I just felt for him the whole time. It's funny because he's a very sort of normal-looking guy. I think if you saw him on the street, you wouldn't think twice, but very soulful actor. Uh, and I feel bad for him here. We see him. He's a, he's a doctor, a husband, a father. We see him at home where the connection is that uh, Santiago's mother is is the maid. We see that uh, his boys, Trevor and Tom, like the radio shows and never seen snow. And then we see his wife, Linda, who is uh, Piper Parabo looking not like you remember Piper Parabo looking. Hmm. Um, 
I, you say she might be an alcoholic. Uh, I think she's definitely an alcoholic. Oh, yes. Okay. She's not. She's like, don't, children, just be quiet and don't say anything. Uh, Peter tells Tiago's mom, don't let her drink. And then, you know, so, so already I feel kind of sorry for him. Like, he loves his boys. He's dealing with this woman who is, uh, you know, doesn't seem like an equal partner with him. He's learning English on the way to work. It's, it's, it's very kind of. Very kind of sweet. You know, we're like, oh, he's trying to be an American. At his office, he examines a uh, an asthma patient named Frank Brenson, who is accompanied by his mother, who is Elsa, a German woman from Essen, who is really just a prettied up Magda. So we know, oh boy, what is going on here? Mm. Something weird. She also gets simply on her side. Apparently, she has an American spouse who is also not ideal. She says he's horrible, and he's like, does he hit you? And she's like, Wah. And then he's like, does he hit the child? Wah. You know, she lets him go down a path she doesn't exactly uh, uh, say specifically. She kind of makes a pass on him. He doesn't say anything to it. He, again, he's just a very nice, sweet guy. She goes in the elevator, and this is where we have this amazing, my best, my favorite moment of the of the episode, where in the elevator she just decides to she's gonna she's gonna suck her son up back up into her body. <laughs> I don't know why she's got to do it before she hits the street, um, but there she does it. So Peter's like, oh, "I'm gonna go out for lunch." He opens up his closet, and there goes away all my sympathy for him. He's oh. got the Nazi flag in there now. Again, as you said, he's kind of a merry German. You know, he goes to the park. He's got a group of the German-American wounded to a park. He he makes a very, um, what I would say is very smartly done plea for people like, hey, listen, there's no need to, to get, go get into trouble. There's trouble, trouble down the street. You, you don't, you don't go in and cause yourself trouble. Why? Why have the trouble? Enjoy hot dogs from Germany. Oh, look, that guy over there, he's eating it right. He's got the right toppings on it. Um, so, yeah, he is basically uh, pitching non-intervention. Now, what I do find interesting here is that as far as the real world went, we were completely happy to stay out of the war until someone came and punched us in the face. Uh Right. So, I mean, you know, you can pitch it all you want. And who knows how long we would have stayed out of the war if Pearl Harbor hadn't been bombed. So um, Peter's got the right idea. He just forgot to tell his allies, the Japanese, not to punch us in the face. Yeah. Now, what I loved about it is in the park, as I'm watching it again, if you listen to him in the park, he sounds like Bernie Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) He does. He's like, no, you know. When when you when people are fighting down the street, you you don't go down the street. You stay in your home and enjoy your hot dogs. Exactly, uh, and as long as he doesn't mix up too many R's and W's, then I'm okay with him for the most part. Uh, it seems like Peter can't uh, quite find himself, and uh, I do still, despite his choices, which I feel are terrible. Let me just make that perfectly clear. His choices uh, that he's made with the German-American Bund is one of the things that I feel is is, is an awful choice for him to make. Uh, but I, you know, it it's going to it's coming down to we see at the end of the episode how Magda whispers into these people unknowingly, 
But there's a couple of cases in this episode where she's merely presenting herself and allowing the humans to just make their decision based. That's where, to me, Magda's real power lies, is, is the fact that she's going to use this guy somehow to manipulate him into something that he's not. And what we're supposed to see yeah. right now is him not being that person. And we're going to see how she changes him. Yeah, maybe he won't end up being uh, such, uh, such a happy German, but he's so sweet right now. Yes. What, what, what a guy. What a guy. Yeah. I mean, listen, he would have convinced me at the park. Maybe. I don't know if he would have convinced me about the sauerkraut, uh, but for sure the hot dogs. <laughs> We're pro hot dogs here at Delightfully Dreadful. That is for certain. Well, as far as that goes, uh, that's something quite political, but there's another big political issue, and we've already addressed some of it in prior little story snippets, but this one I like to call, this little subheading is Progress as Promised versus Vote for the Union Label. And this is Raul, uh, the older brother of Tiago, or maybe just slightly younger. I'm not sure which one is older. Catfish, did you get a sense of which one was older? It felt like because of their uh, dynamic that Raul was older. It seemed that way to me too. But he's fighting to save his family home and his neighborhood against the building of this parkway that is set to be constructed right through the middle of it. And he attends a council, city council meeting, uh, which is headed by Councilman Charles Townsend, played by Michael Gladys. And it states that he has this case that where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Uh, Townsend says, well, you can go home, which is, oh, boy, that was that one made me really not like Townsend very much. Uh, but then he and his friends begin to protest. They do a little chant and a little beating on the on the wood structures there. And, and Townsend has them all thrown out and under arrest. And after the meeting, Townsend is then assisted by yet another version of Magda. This time she calls herself Alex. And she seems to be Townsend's assistant. Uh, she informs Townsend that she's actually scheduled a meeting for him. As it turns out... If we didn't have enough Germans, the meeting involves a German architect named Richard oh, good Goss. Lord. <laughs> and uh, that's played by Thomas Kreschmann. And uh, he approaches Townsend with the idea of Townsend having power in the city as mayor. But, of course, as with all things, there is a price. And Goss goes on to speaking pretty much indirectly or pretty much directly about a Nazi occupation coming. Uh, and when Townsend tries to ward off Goss, he talks about regulations, he talks about the FBI. Goss counters by threatening that Townsend will just be killed right then and there by his Gestapo driver if uh, Townsend doesn't agree. That leads to the actual protest at the Vega family neighborhood where Tiago decides to come to work and he has to face off with his brother. He makes an attempt, as Catfish said earlier, to calm everybody down and let the road construction happen. As the debate continues, then we have Magda seeking out some people that she can manipulate in order to escalate things and manipulate them easily. She finds a young, scared officer and whispers in his ear, and the violence builds even more as Magda is whispering in Raul's ear as well. Shots are ringing out. People are fighting. Raul suddenly takes gun into his own hands and starts shooting police officers, and it takes... Tiago to shoot him down before uh, Santa Morte and Magda are staring at each other yet again. 
over the carnage. And that's how the episode ends. So, Catfish, what do you think of this big ending? Well, what's what's interesting is first is that, um, you know, Goss, I mean, <laughs> when when you name check Mussolini and Hitler, that is not a good sign. Mm. Um, you know, uh, there was it did feel a little involuntary at one point when the, when the after the Germans said, uh, you know, if you don't agree, I'll shoot you. But you know, at some point he protests and weakly when he says, I, "I won't betray my country," and the German says, "Of course you will. <laughs> of course you. Of course will. you will." <laughs> um. Uh. So yeah, you know what? You know what is? I found kind of a stunning parallel here. Uh, Matt, is that I was actually in that exact committee room downtown a few years ago. Whoa, for what? Well, in a kind of a strange parallel, I was there with a group of people accused of, 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 we were accused of being racist because there was, uh, I live in North Hollywood and sort of close to, uh, sort of, we're, I guess the neighborhood is kind of gentrifying and sort of north of me, like south of me is fancier and north of me is a little bit more low income and a Hispanic community. And about a block and a half away from me, there was this club um, that uh, uh, before I even moved in this neighborhood, they were trying to shut it down for years because there was a lot of like shootings and such going on there and actually Mm. on my street which is the only street in the neighborhood that doesn't have lights uh people were having sex in their cars and there was all sorts of shenanigans going on and so they were trying to close it down for years and it turns out the people who owned it we just kept selling it to different family members so they had to start all over again so anyway i went to a bunch of committee meetings and that was one of them i went into there where i was accused as anybody who was trying to shut this club down it's because we were anti- Hispanic. And it wasn't that. I just didn't want people getting shot in my neighborhood. I kind of understand that you don't want to get people shot in your neighborhood for certain. But on the other hand, if you are, if you have a club in your neighborhood and you've been going to it. Now, granted, there were a lot of people from out of the neighborhood who came in, but and then a bunch of white people move in and then they're like, we don't want this club here. And you're like, this is our damn club. Mm. I can see where you would say like, uh, I feel like maybe, you know, this is from my point of view, that uh, part of part of the uh, quote unquote calls of racism were kind of being used as a cudgel uh, because basically this club did not want to uh, stop uh, existing. Yeah, well, they wanted to stay in business, but uh, at the same time, you know, your your war there, your your people's war there seemed to be more about crime to me. It definitely was uh, about about crime, but I did I did uh, was momentarily shaken by the parallels. Oh of yeah, people I can being only imagine out of their neighborhood in the same room where I was accused of being racist for trying to shut down a Mexican nightclub. <laughs> wow, uh, yeah, that would have freaked me out a little bit, catfish. That's, that's yeah, <laughs> just oh. questioning myself. Yeah, wow. Rewatching it, I was uh, again. I was sort of let down by episode two a little bit, uh, but this episode I think is a good a good table setter. There's enough creepiness. There's enough kind of real life things going on. I, I think we like that. Although it may not that may not be my favorite thing, but I might get might get used to it. But um, you know, we 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 shall see. 
We'll see. Well, one thing is for certain in this episode, and that is the power that Magda has. And that power is actually represented by a couple of motifs in the music. So, our music of John Pisano is next. Now open your arms, sister. I'll give you many souls today. the music that introduced us to Magda other than the recordings put in by the music supervisor this is the first real orchestral theme that we heard in the episode or at least two separate motives but the way that they're played in sequence maybe we can call this a theme the only thing that I can for sure say having just seen one episode and not seeing what gets repeated and have you is that this motive appears underneath Magda several times in this singular episode. The full phrase is actually two statements that are very similar, but they start in different places. Let's break each one down individually. The first one that we hear is coming out of the home key. It feels like it's starting very near what we would call the tonal center or root of the key. It sounds like it's starting on the same note that the bass note is on. I'm talking about this. The first thing we want to talk about is the shape of this motif. And this is in the case of both of the motifs that are present in this entire phrase. But the shape starts with a single step like and then a big jump. And then it falls back down, takes that single step, takes another jump, but not quite as high. And we'll talk more about that second one in just a second. And then the third one goes back down, takes that step up one more time. And this time, instead of falling back down immediately, it jumps up before coming back to that last note. What does this indicate? Well, a rising threat, something that is building. Because in the littlest machinations, like the small step at the beginning, suddenly there's a new threat, which is the higher notes. Then the second part of that, let's take a quick look at that, because it actually rises to a note that isn't really part of that scale, something that doesn't quite fit. And what that tells us is that uh, there's a little bit of strangeness about this. There's something not right about it. So that would be a harmonic implication. 
And then the third phrase goes on and rises to the original place, but then it jumps even higher and then falls back to that strange note. And both of those notes don't really fit the major scale. They might fit a dominant scale, but they're both a little bit out of place and they're both very powerful because they're played quickly. So there's a rhythm as well as the harmony that is implied in those sequences of notes. Then there is a second part to this, which follows a very similar type of shape. I'm talking about this second part. The shape is very similar, but the whole shape starts from a different place in the key in what we consider to be the right sound. It starts from a different place, what we call the fifth step, and then jumps above the tonic. We started very near the tonic. We resolved up to the tonic in the first two notes of that step that we had. Here, we have the same intervals, meaning the space between notes. They're right next to each other, but we're starting that sequence, that step, in a different place. And what that does is it juxtaposes the melody higher, even higher. The threat is rising even higher. So, the overall shape of the phrase is that everything is building and building and building. And... In this particular case, it's only the last notes of the third part of this phrase. You do notice with the powerful rhythm, once again, how the last two notes don't really work. To demonstrate to you why they don't feel like they fit in that key, one only has to play them at the same time. Let's listen to how in the first phrase that I played, how the odd note fits against what we call tonality or the key, the home center that you feel like the music is in. That interval or space between notes is what we call a tritone. Typically, a tritone feels like it needs to resolve to us. Why is that? Well, Pythagoras discovered that there were certain notes that have played at the same time that just made us feel uncomfortable. That's called dissonance. It means we need to resolve it. Resolution. And a tritone is a key part of a chord that we always feel like gets us back to the one. However, in this case, we already have the one, the key that it's in, underneath. And so where's it going to resolve to? That's what creates the dissonance. The reason we feel dissonance with that is because of the symmetry between the notes. If you listen to the last podcast, I talked about how there are 12 notes between the same note, just an octave higher or an octave lower. And when you have exact splits in that octave, we tend to feel like things don't harmonically feel correct to us. In this case, these two notes in a regular scale would be exactly six steps apart, creating a symmetry of two 
halves, and that's why it makes us feel uncomfortable. It creates, again, what we call dissonance, and when we have dissonance, we feel the need to find a way to resolve that dissonance. It's rather weird. We'll talk a little bit more about it here in a second, but it's amazing how symmetry works for us in terms of rhythm, but it doesn't really work for us in terms of harmony or melodic shape. There's another kind of dissonance in the second phrase. I'll play the ending note and the key that it's in. That's really ugly, right? It doesn't sound right at all. Not only is the intervals, because they're so far apart, uncomfortable, we like for our intervals to be within a reachable range to feel comfortable. But here, they're very far apart. But the actual notes themselves, if you looked at them on a scale, would be right next to each other if they were played in the same octave. So that's something else that has symmetry to it. Because they're right next to each other, you could get six equal divisions of those 12 notes playing notes that are right next to each other. And that creates some dissonance as well. Why? Because it's symmetric. Why? Because we need to choose between one or the other in this particular case. Since they are right next to each other, which path do you take when you reach the fork? And that's what creates the dissonance there. Now, I will say that this second phrase that I played for you earlier, not the first part, but the second part, is the one that we hear used most in this particular episode. That's why I divided the whole phrase up into two individual motives, because it's important to understand that motives can work independent of each other and still allude to the same general concept. In this case, our same general concept is Magda and her rising. She's using these machinations to rise to power, to bring about the ending that she wants. So, when we get to the next scene, I want you to listen for this, the second phrase. It'll be very high, which, again, makes it a little bit uncomfortable. But it will be very high in the very high strings, and this is as Magda is getting into the elevator with herself. That's, and it's right before they're going to be joined back together. So listen for that as Magda gets into the elevator with her boy self. Notice something else, and that is that the rhythm of this is being played with. Sometimes the phrase is more drawn out. Sometimes it's closer together. I mentioned earlier 
that we really like symmetry in our rhythms, even though we've proven how we don't really like symmetry in our harmony. Rhythm is something else. It's much easier for us to do a dance to something that is in 4-4, where there's four counts, one, two, three, four, as opposed to one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two. That's a little bit more difficult for us. So we tend to like more symmetry in our rhythms. And in order to re-emphasize the fact that this is evil at play, the composer drew out those first two notes, which were real quick steps the first time we heard it. He drew them out a little longer to emphasize that she is still building, and now she's building even stronger. And the truth of the matter is, is that, man, if you're not listening really carefully, you'll miss that phrase in the elevator. There's a lot of other things going on musically that it's just kind of behind or really far back in the mix. This is just for the psychological effect of associating this piece of music with Magda herself, with her motivations, with what she is doing, with her powers. Your brain is categorizing all of this stuff all of the time, and you don't even know it. It's just cataloging it, cataloging it, cataloging it, and composers rely on that. The whole principle of psychoacoustics is the use of repetition and the science of dissonance and harmony to make you feel emotion. And so you get a little more creeped out by that elevator scene simply because you now associate it in the back of your subconscious with that fire scene at the beginning of the episode where we saw Santiago's father horrifically burned. And I know that this part of the podcast has gone on a little long and it's making the podcast long. So I've pretty much done all of the analyzation for it, but there are a couple of more sequences, mainly near the end, where you do hear the phrases from the Magda, we'll tentatively call it a theme, especially during the standoff between the people of the neighborhood and the police. One, you hear as Magda is surveying the different police officers and and her focuses her attention on the young one who she thinks is not going to be very resistant to her whisperings her suggestions she sees him and we hear it mainly in a bell like sound we hear this And very near that sequence, as she's making her final suggestions to the young police officer and he fires the weapon, we feel that gain speed. We feel that thematic fragment get more powerful because it is played in octaves in between the bell and the strings. And so you get this kind of effect with it. So listen for both of those versions of the motive as Santiago is making his plea and Magda is checking out and finding the right police officer and then making him fire the weapon. ¿Saben quién va a perder? 
Así que váyanse a sus casas con sus familias. And then all chaos is ensuing, right? And the way that when Magda is using her power, whispering to Raul, the way he magnifies how much more powerful and how much more dangerous she has become, he creates additional dissonances by playing the motive several times against each other, but from different starting points to where it makes it feel like it doesn't fit together at all it makes it feel even more disastrous just as the disaster is unfolding in front of the police and in front of these people everything is falling apart and that's what this version of the magda motive represents when we hear this part That top note I had to play twice just because it wouldn't have held up. But the whole idea is that top note actually stays up there the whole time, as you will hear in this scene here in a second. And then the more powerful timbres kick in as well to tell us that Raul is about to do something terrible, that Magda is succeeding. And the way that it's all placed against each other in keys that don't really fit all that well together. That's what makes it so incredibly tense for us. And that's what makes when Raul does start shooting, make us even more horrified. And we'll leave you with that clip. And that's going to conclude the musical analysis. Back with more in just a second. So this is one of the games that we're going to try and play, and we would love for you to participate. How do you participate? You submit your three-word descriptions of an episode. You only get three words in order to be able to describe the episode. Three words is all you get, but you tweet those three words to at DreadfulPod on Twitter, or you can send them via email to DreadfulPodcast at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to just hit up and follow the double P media network that's of course the word double the letter p h q on twitter and on instagram and facebook.com slash double p h q catfish i've been doing this segment in every podcast of mine for 11 years now i started this with the lost wow. podcast where i did i did a three-word segment 
And I've seen other podcasts start to do it, and I don't know if they copied off of me or if they just came up with the same idea. That's actually more likely. But I'm continuing regardless. Uh, I'm continuing to do this segment that we call Three Words, where I'm going to describe my thoughts about the episode. It doesn't have to be about the whole episode. You can just do your own feelings about a particular scene, even, if you want. Um, Mine is I I got to compare in all of the different... uh, kind of incarnations of Magda in this episode, and I decided that Alex trumps Elsa. Uh, uh, I loved Natalie Dormer doing the multiple roles. I thought she did fantastic with each one, gave them all their own individual kind of feel. You also, to me, you felt like there was a, a just this kind of subtle thing of the the Magna that you like to call. What's it, the double D? Yeah, yeah, Dominatrix Dorner. Dominatrix Dormer. Yeah, I I loved how you felt the subtleness of her trying to act these roles out, but not as much. She seemed much more at home with the Alex role, who could be more direct uh, with Townsend uh, than maybe Elsa has to be a little more subtle with Peter Kraft. So those are my three words, Alex. And I put the Trumps in quotes because uh, that's who Alex reminds me of. Uh, There you go. Political statement done. Uh, Catfish, what have you got for three words? Spoiled it throughout the rest of this podcast, but my three words are more craziness, please. <laughs> more craziness, please. Uh, you really do like that aspect of the old series, uh, seemingly oh, more yeah. than I did. See, that's the stuff that would make me flinch and get up and walk away. Uh, but you seem to love it, so I'm, I'm good with that. And now we now we're gonna have we gotta have some awards too. Every week we gotta give out some awards. We absolutely do. So this is the first podcast way to figure out what the right awards were to give. And this first award is the Townsend Award. The Townsend Award? Yeah, named after our politician who is uh, licking his chops to become mayor, to doing whatever it takes. So it's the biggest real-life political numbskull move this week. Matt, who gets your Townsend Award for this week? Well, I'm going with Governor Greg Abbott of Texas for just kind of opening the floodgates. You could say that about a lot of of governors uh, this week, actually, in terms of the pandemic crisis. I don't believe that we should be releasing these things just yet, but I, I just feel like this is a move too soon. Uh, and uh, we, we've tightened our belts before. Uh, economic reasons aren't good enough for me, because what good is money if you're dead? That is pretty good, but I'm sorry. I hate to do this, but I have to give it to our fearless and feckless leader, Donald J. Trump, for intimating that perhaps injecting Clorox or exposing the inside of your body to ultraviolet rays will knock this virus right out. (laughs) That there's nothing more idiotic than that and frightening because, as I said, he's the one leading us into the war against the virus that he said wasn't going to hit us at all. So that's what happened to his hair. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Sorry. I'm trying to make jokes. I love it. I love it. Now, uh, here's the... I wanna, I'm going to announce this next one as well, because you have to announce the last award. Oh. This one is... This award is called... I call it My Favorite Magna. Oh. Now, we have seen... Three of the incarnations of Magda. Now, you have told me that we're going to eventually see four. Is that correct? I believe there is one yet to be seen, which you might, yeah, I, just as a, to let you folks on kind of on the inside of the podcast, 
because Catfish is an actor, he gets to see some episodes of some things in advance. And the screenshot that you showed me in a private DM in Twitter tends to make me think that that was the other one. Oh, okay. Well, that would be episode three. You know, another thing I didn't say was I uh, did, in fact, audition for a racist cop for this show. Not the main racist cop we've seen already. A different racist cop. Uh, oh, no. How many are there going to be? <laughs> apparently, uh, this is not the last time that Tiago is going to have to deal with people saying racist crap to him. Are we going to have to come up with an award for racist cop of the week? <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, all of them. All of them. Um, yeah. All right. So who is, Matt, who is your favorite Magda? Oh, I loved all of the Magnas, but I am Team Alex. Um I watched the little uh, production, pre-production thing that they showed uh, with Nat Dormer. She has to wear like these bumpers, she called them, in her mouth in order to shape her face differently a little bit. Okay. And I can't imagine trying to talk through those. Uh, but uh, I, I, just in terms of the character of Alex herself, um, you wouldn't think that she'd be in very good standing with Townsend anymore after she arranged this meeting with Goss. But, you know, she kind of pumped him up with the with the whole... Uh, Hitler and Mussolini quotes. So I, 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 I love the way she, she manages to not use beauty in the same way that Elsa does, but instead uses ego in order to get what she wants. All right. Well, now, so far, all the three Magdas, because it's a double P podcast, I've got doubles for all of them. So while I like double M. Double M? Yeah, Mousy Magda. Ooh. And I like triple C. Triple C. Yeah, creepy child colligation, Magda. <laughs> My favorite Magda is still Double D. Double D? What's that again? Dominatrix Dorner. Leather bondage Magda is my favorite Magda in this episode. And maybe for all time. <laughs> this Whoa. game may not be good. I might have to say Double D every week. Cool. But you know what? Maybe there's a chance I won't. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, yeah, you, you may have to say it every week. There's there's a good chance that we're going to see uh, Double D. Double D? Dominatrix Dormer, uh, oh, Leather right, Bondage Magda. And, uh, we're going to see her quite a bit. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't mind if you nominated her every week. We do have one other award that we would like to offer. Oh, tell me. It is also a Magda award, uh, but because, you know, every good class has members of the magna cum laude we figured we should have a magna cum laude award oh i like it and who helped magna with her evil plans the most in this episode is where we go with all right so they would they would get the magna cum laude because they were first in helping magna exactly okay all right Well, well what what is what is your answer well, my answer would be uh, everything else evil in this episode extends from Mr. Townsend, from our councilman Townsend. Everything that happens bad, the, the, the riots and everything, it's all because of him. He is the chief Magda Cum Laude character in this episode. Now, that's a good answer, but it's completely wrong. Uh-oh. Now, listen, you would think for evil people trying to help Magda... That one of the two Nazis in this episode would have won the award. But no, in fact, Peter is actually trying to increase the peace. Stay out of war. Do We don't want uh, a country versus country. The person who helps Magda the most this week is the one who helps her 
in her plan, and that's Tiago, because she said brother is going to kill brother, and Tiago tried to kill his brother and maybe succeeded. So Tiago gets my Magda Cum Laude of the week. Wow. Great job, Tiago. Wow, Tiago. Well, way to drop the ball, Tiago. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you definitely helped Magda out there. That's horrible. Folks, we hope that you've enjoyed a little bit of our silliness, and we hope that you've enjoyed some of our uh, more sane takes on some of this episode. We would love if you would take the time to find us on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. If you can, please leave a written review. That's what helps us stay noticeable, helps us stay number six among the three active podcasts that are out there. And you can do so by going to dreadfulpodcast.wordpress.com. That's the website for this podcast. There's links to iTunes there. Go into your iTunes app and leave us a review. That would be very helpful. And it doesn't really matter what Catfish and I think. We care what you think, and we want to share it with the rest of our listeners. Please send emails to dreadfulpodcast.gmail.com, or you can tweet to at dreadfulpod on Twitter. And Catfish, if people want to reach out to you, exclusively regarding Penny Dreadful City of Angels, how can they do so? Yeah, or or my racism. Uh, they can hit me up at CJGman67. Hey, and a reminder, if you send us feedback, we will read it on the next podcast. We if absolutely you ever wanted will. to hear the sixth ranked Penny Dreadful podcast, read your words, send it to us. Absolutely. We definitely would love to do that. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. We will see you next time on Delightfully Dreadful. <laughs> Send emails to dreadfulpodcast at gmail.com or tweet to at dreadfulpod. <laughs>